0: Amen. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate the emphasis upon the Holy Spirit being our teacher. Without the Holy Spirit, we're, we're all doomed. We can know nothing except that the Spirit of God uh, helps us with it. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 14. Continuing on our study in Luke. I love the Gospels. Gives us a glimpse into the snippets of Jesus' life, how he interacted with others, and I think it's helpful for specifically lots of reasons. But two reasons that come to my mind when we look at the life of Jesus and the words that he speaks, we hear his wisdom in the words that he spoke, in uh, the way that he spoke them. Uh, number two, I think we often times see an example of what we are to do in certain situations. You know, when he goes to somebody's house and uh, has dinner, you know, what did he do? What were, what were the things that he said? I think they can be examples to us. And it appears that Luke some, seems to be significantly poignant because it emphasizes Jesus' compassion, uh, his ministry especially to the downtrodden. Uh, the poor, I think that even the women, I think that more women are mentioned in Luke than any of the other Gospels as far as Jesus interacting with them. Uh, it's, there seems to be more of a human connection, if you would, uh, to Christ in, in the Gospel uh, of Luke. So I, I've, I've appreciated uh, our, our walking through uh, Luke. But here we are, we're just going to take the first six verses of, of chapter 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you... Having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could not answer him regarding these things. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to hear your word. Father, we're amazed that when even sometimes your disciples stood around you, they didn't even understand what you were saying. They didn't get it. And Lord, I I pray that tonight we'll, we'll get it whatever you're trying to speak to us. So I pray that you would block out the worries, the distractions, but most of all, block out the sin that creates the wall around our hearts that we can't receive your word. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, give us all the spiritual things that we need to receive your word tonight because it is life-giving, it's powerful, it's eternal. So I pray that these that have gathered tonight have vested the time to come back here, would benefit spiritually because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the setting of this particular passage, we see, first of all, that it's happening on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a day of rest for most, except the elders and the deacons. Man. <laughs> right? it's, a, it's a hard work, but it's a different type of rest when you're an elder. Most elders take Monday off because Sunday is so grueling sometimes. But what is Jesus doing on the Sabbath? He's still in the business of seeking and saving those who are lost. The Pharisees, we know all about them, they're out to get him. (laughs) They're out to take him out. But Jesus is willing to go. He's willing to take it on. He's about his father's business. Why would Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Obviously, that's the setting here. He's going to heal somebody. Why, why even would the Scriptures point out that it was the Sabbath? I, I meditated upon upon this thought. Why, why Sabbath day versus other days? And in particular, we back in what chapter 13, he, he healed somebody else on the Sabbath. Why, why the Sabbath day? And as I thought about it, one of the reasons that came to mind, this is the day that the Pharisees have to shine, right? This is when all the rules are rolled out. They're completely in charge of the day. Everybody looks to them and says, all right, what are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? And Jesus sees it as an opportunity to show their clear hypocrisy. Remember last time in chapter 13, he, he right out just said it. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're hypocrites. Their hypocrisy, in many ways, was most on display on the Sabbath. So this is a ministry opportunity uh, for for Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we forget how much the Pharisees really influenced people. And so Jesus constantly had to come forward and point out their hypocrisy, point out their weaknesses. So he knows he's in enemy territory. But he's eating at the home of a Pharisee. You know, when you go to somebody's home and you have to sit down and eat, there's a certain decorum that you you have to follow, right? You're in somebody else's home. um, You you know that you're a guest, but you still have to be engaged in the Father's business. That's what Jesus is saying. He knows he's at the host, the Pharisee, someone probably out to get him, but he was not afraid to engage the enemies, even on their own turf, to go into their home. We would do well to follow Jesus' example in this way, even and especially on Sunday. Rest? Yes. Stop from doing the Father's business? No, never. He had work to do and he was going to do it. John 5, verses 16-18, to For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, according to them, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is ready for spiritual warfare. Even on the Sabbath, he's ready to do the Father's business. Remember, in the ministry of Jesus, there are three types of people that followed and listened to him i put them into three types the first type are the people who wanted to know jesus these are his disciples these are the ones who are coming seeking the truth they know there's something special about jesus so there's the people who want to know him then there you have the people who wanted a show from him right those who are bored or tired of chariot races i don't know They're looking for the next thrill. Jesus was was good for something you don't see every day. (laughs) You know, He can multiply the bread. He can heal the people. This is is a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. People wanted to follow Him to see what the next miracle was going to be. They wanted their bellies full. There was a lot of people like that that followed Jesus. So there were people who wanted a show from Him. And, uh, you know, also, I think they really... They really enjoyed seeing him take the Pharisees down, the lawyers. These people knew they were a bunch of hypocrites. They, they wanted to do exactly what Jesus was doing, but didn't have the guts to do it, because they would be thrown out of the community or put down. I think secretly people came to say, oh, let's, who's he going to get today? Let's get him, right? They secretly hated the Pharisees. So you've got people who wanted to know him, people who wanted a show from him, and then there were those who were a foe, to him. Now what's a foe? It's an enemy, right? Those who came specifically just to take him out. They wanted to find something wrong. They needed to get him out of the way. He was threatening their system. Now we know them as the Pharisees, Sadducees in some degree, the lawyers. These are all the people who were his foe. Those who wanted to know, those who wanted to show, and those who were his foe. Clearly this is uh, a group that are his foe, right? And we, we read here in verse 1 that they watched him closely. Now, they're not watching him closely to learn. They're watching him closely to trip him up, to accuse him. You don't want to be that type of person. <laughs> you know, and I cringe when I say that because I wonder sometimes in myself how much I'm like that. Am I watching somebody or something too closely just to find fault with it, you know, with the idea that we come in to try to help somebody or make it better. But if you're constantly that person that's trying to find fault, nobody really wants to to be around you. Don't be the person that's always trying to find fault. But he knew that he was in enemy territory. The Pharisees were watching him closely. Can you imagine? Every word you spoke, somebody's going to take it into account. I'm sure the elders you know find that happening many times right somebody gets up here and preaches for an hour the chances of him saying something that's a little bit off or not right are pretty high right If <laughs> you don't get a chance to question him don't be the person who watches so closely don't be like the pharisees so we, we see here in the midst of this jesus sits down to eat bread a nice meal but you know that it's not going to be just a nice meal it's with jesus and the pharisees something's going to happen but behold, it says there is a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now what in the world is dropsy? Is that the disease of dropping things, Asher? If somebody just goes around and drops everything, I had that disease before. <laughs> dropping things, spilling things, uh, breaking things. That's not what this is. Uh, dropsy, actually I think our modern, it's a, it's, it's a swelling of the tissue. It's excess water. I think our modern term actually is edema, which Brother Kevin actually has. He has this, this problem of excess water. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we don't really, Kevin doesn't talk much about it, or we don't really think much about it. You know, he might, he might move differently or slower. He's not, he's not going to win the next 100-yard dash in the church. But at this time, this was, this was a fatal disease. Dropsy was fatal. It was uh, actually an issue of the heart, the liver, the kidneys, uh, but it would be fatal. Now, today, obviously, modern medicine, we, we have ways to take care of it, but this man had a disease that was fatal, I, and I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, was he a guest, was he a servant, was he somebody, you know, sitting outside the wall, I don't know, but here's, here's what I do know, Jesus is in enemy territory. He's got a very specific plan to point out. One of the things he's going to do is point out the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And this, is, this is engaging, spiritual battle. You have to be ready. You're going to take on the enemy. You have to take it on very carefully. But also in the midst of that, his father's business wasn't just in taking care of the enemy. His father's business was compassion and mercy. Now, the the Westminster Confession tells us on on the Sabbath we do things for the Lord and acts of mercy. So Jesus did acts of mercy. And, of course, the Pharisees didn't quite see it that way. But I wonder sometimes, and I I tend to be this type of person, when I get engaged into the battle and I've got something to do and a a job to complete, a project, right, My, my mercy meter and my compassion meter goes down a bit, right? I get my head down, I'm ready to get stuff done, I'm, I'm about my father's business which is taking on the enemy, and got to get these Pharisees and point out their hypocrisy and my compassion and mercy kind of goes down a little bit, right, or sometimes a lot of it. But not with Jesus, he can do them both, he can be ready and engaged in the battle, he can take the Pharisees down and he can have mercy and compassion. And in the wonderful way that he's God, he uses both of them to bring about the same object and goal. Right? It's, it's a wonderful way that Jesus does this. But my, my point here is to have an eye always towards compassion and mercy. Always. When, even when you're about your father's business. Especially when you're about your father's business. Be a compassionate and merciful person. So the goal here, number one, is to expose hypocrisy. In in essence, (coughs) Jesus is protecting the law, right? The proper interpretation of the law. These guys really messed things up. He was fulfilling, not breaking the law. This would be important because the ultimate hypocrisy would be killing a man who kept the law perfectly by claiming he broke the law in the most egregious way. Remember that verse that I read, they sought all the more to kill him. Breaking the Sabbath, he's uh, claiming to be God, he's equaled with God. Well, all these things were true. Were they not? Of course they were. So he has to expose the hypocrisy to protect the law. Number two, he's proclaiming his authority of the Sabbath and telling them the proper way to, to use the Sabbath, to do good on it. Mark 2, 27 and 28, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. So it's an act of mercy. So his goal is to expose the hypocrisy, proclaim the authority of the Sabbath, and to do good on the Sabbath, to do this act of mercy. Now what about his, his methods? You know, we might consider Jesus to be the great answer man, the great speaker. We've heard that before, and he was, certainly was but in many ways I think he was the great questioner. In this story, Jesus speaks twice and both times there are questions. Someone once said, we learn more by looking for the answer to a question and not finding it than we do from learning the answer itself. Someone else said, if you do not know how to ask the right question, you'll discover nothing. Questions are extremely important and we see this in the life of Jesus. Now in When Jesus makes a statement, we know that every mouth will be stopped when He makes a broad and commanding statement. Romans 3.19 said, We know that whatever the law says, those are statements by God, it says to those who are under law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Jesus often had these kind of what we call mic drop moments. He would make a statement and everybody would just stop. Well, even here, He asks a question. Right, and the Pharisees kept silent. Right, they know they're squirming. The hypocrisy is being exposed. It's so profound, so true. No one can respond. That's what we have here. But in Jesus' life, he um, he he is asked um, three hundred and seven questions in the ministry, in the Gospels. Jesus is asked three hundred and seven questions. I'm sorry. He asks 307 questions. He has asked 183 questions. You know how many questions he ask, answers directly? He's asked 183 questions. How many questions do you think he answers? Three. He only answers three questions directly. Now, I, that, that that was amazing to me when I when I read that. Generally, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated when I ask somebody a question and they don't answer it. But Jesus is all wisdom, the fountain of wisdom. And he teaches us that not all questions should be answered or need to be answered. Uh, in fact, 29 times Jesus answers a question with a question. Right? Why do we ask questions? Why do we ask questions? Well, reason number one We ask questions because we need knowledge that we don't have. What time is church tonight? Where are you going? When are you going to be back? These are questions to get knowledge. 90% of the time, I think, when we ask a question, it's to get knowledge, reason number one. Number two, questions can be used for bad purposes. They they can threaten, intimidate. They can even point out a lack of knowledge, a sarcastic question. Don't you know what you're doing? We can use a question as a form of bad purpose, for bad purposes, intimidation. But reason number three, questions can be used for good. And this is obviously what Jesus did in his ministry. He didn't need the knowledge of one. He wouldn't do number two. Let's take a look at why and how he used questions for good. A study of Jesus' questions to me was very interesting. I... I, found different ways that Jesus used questions. The first one uh, that I discovered was human connection. Simply like in John chapter 4. He walks up to the well, the woman is there. Remember what his question was. Will you give me a drink? There's just human connection, way to start something. He's opening up a conversation. Secondly, it was for introspection. Jesus used questions to probe into the heart. Luke chapter 6 verses 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back the question that probes the heart Jesus wanted to dig deep and he wanted responses that were deep the third way that Jesus used questions was to address worry Matthew 6 25-30 therefore I say to you do not worry about your life what you will eat what you will drink nor about your body What you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Besides, which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus is tackling the issue of worry here. Jesus is saying, God's got the birds taken care of. He's got the flowers taken care of. So you're good. Don't worry about it. The lesser to the greater. We heard Josh mention this this morning. Children, you know what the argument of lesser to the greater means? It's kind of an odd phrase. Lesser to the greater. That means if if you're taking care of something little, if God is taking care of little, little things, like birds and flowers and clothes, he's going to take care of the big things too. If he's, if he's very concerned about the little things, the sparrow that falls to the ground, he's going to take care of the big things. Don't worry. But he uses questions here to make us think about it. Another way that Jesus used question was to address grievances between brothers. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the blank in your own eye? Now, there's a whole sermon right there. One question. Whoa. How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a great big plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. So Jesus uses a question to address grievances between brothers. He uses a question to make an argument. Mark 3 and verse 4, Jesus asks them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Again, silence. Matthew eighteen twelve b What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? He's making a point here. He's making an argument with a simple question. There are other types of questions that we use, that Jesus used, warm-up questions, to-the-point questions, questions that revealed inadequacy, reminding people what they already know. Have you not read? How many times did Jesus say that? Have you not read? Don't you remember? Asking for opinions, right? Remember he asked his disciples, Peter, "Whom, whom do men say that I am? Now, Jesus knows the answers to these questions, but he's, he's drawing out. Consider the cost, Jesus says. Restorative questions. I think one of the most profound back-and-forth questions, at least in my mind, is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We know it as the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the setting for the story of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer comes up and he asks a question a question that probably very few of us will ever get in our lifetime. <laughs> he says, good teacher, how do I get eternal life? Have, has anybody ever asked you that question directly? Anybody here? How do I get eternal life? How do I get saved? That's a, it's a tremendous question. Does Jesus answer the question? No, he doesn't answer the question. But he does with another question. Remember, he, he gives them two questions back. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer responds correctly. Remember his response? I shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you got it. Those are the two things. Then the lawyer comes back and asks another question. He says, who is my neighbor? And the Bible, I think, specifically says he's looking to justify himself. So he wants a way out. Maybe this neighbor thing is my way out. Who's my neighbor? Does Jesus answer the question? No, he doesn't. (laughs) He asks. He tells a story, and then he asks a question at the end of the story. Remember, he goes on to say, tell the story of the Good Samaritan, and he points out what a good neighbor looks like. And he ends with this question. So which of these three, remember, the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? This is so masterful. The lawyer says, who's my neighbor? Jesus comes back and tells a story and says, what kind of neighbor are you? He flips it totally. The question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, what kind of neighbor are you? Are you the loving neighbor. Uh, Right to the heart. Right to this man's proud heart. We would do well to emulate our Savior. Now let's look at the two questions in this passage specifically. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They already said, no, you can't do it. He's trying to draw them out. Draw them out. Draw the hypocrisy out. No response. He stops up their mouths. He shames them. For a moment, their hypocrisy is on full display. He could have shouted, hypocrite like he did in, the, in chapter 13, but not this time. He uses what they hold so high and dear and turns it on them. They are the masters of the law. They should know the answer. In fact, I think they did know the answer, but they don't want to say it because they lose all their control. Question number one, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Question number two, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? It's kind of a repeat of the question from chapter 13, verse 15, if you remember. He, he says, you will untie and lead them to water, right? This, uh, this animal you have. But he's taking it to the next level. Not only are you going to water them, but what about the one that's hurt? Are you going to pull them out of the, the, the pit? You would save the life of an animal, but you're not going to help this brother with dropsy? Come on. Hypocrisy. Matthew Henry said it this way. These Pharisees seem to have an ill design in entertaining Jesus. Yeah. But our Lord would not be hindered from healing a man, though he knew a clamor would be raised at his doing it on the Sabbath. It requires care to understand the proper connection between piety and charity in observing the Sabbath and the distinction between works of real necessity and habits of self-indulgence. Wisdom from above teaches patient perseverance and well-doing. As I said, Jesus masterfully brought compassion and mercy and doing the work of the Father against the enemies. The power of questions. You know, in 61 years of my life, one of the most valuable lessons I have learned is the power of a question. Someone once said that you can determine how wise someone is by the questions they ask. More... By the answers they give, I'm not sure why he didn't form that in the phrase of a question, but he made that statement. <laughs> it's truth either way. The TV game show Jeopardy. Since 1964, that that show's been around. Right, it's the third most popular game show. There's some of the most intelligent people in the world. I you know I watch Jeopardy, and maybe I get 10 or something, unless you know. It's a Bible category. And then they, 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 blah, they're they clueless. And I'm like, ah, all those questions, those are easy questions, right? But these most intelligent people who can probably give answers all day long, they still have to put it in the form of a question. Questions are powerful. Job 38 and 39, Todd read that we have one of the longest narratives of God speaking in the Bible. In the first 37 chapters of Job, his friends wanted answers. Job wanted answers. And two chapters, God gave him mostly questions. In fact, almost twice as many questions as statements. Why? Probing deep. Who are you to question? 43 questions, 23 statements. I thought, why would the God of the universe, the all-powerful and wise creator, ask more questions than give statements? Why? We're ready for the statements. We need the help. Why would Jesus show up on earth and ask so many questions? 307 was asked, 183, of which he only answered three directly. I think Jesus gives us insight in why he asked so many questions. John 16, 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. (laughs) If Jesus went around just speaking all the truths, everybody would just be, oh, oh, we don't get this. We don't understand. So he's got to ask the questions, draw it out. His knowledge was too great for them. The power of a question... As a parent, as a husband, as a businessman, I've come to realize that I'm much more effective if I ask more questions and give less statements. Three reasons why I think questions work in communication. Number one, it allows people to do what they love to do most. Most people. Talk. (laughs) People like to talk about themselves. And when you ask them a question, they're going to give you their opinions, right? It draws them out. Proverbs 20 and verse 5, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. People love to tell you their issues. You want to go to Morningstar if you want to hear a story. Go where there's a place where all the older people are. They'll give you a whole day's worth of, of issues and problems and pains, which really begs the question to us, are we good listeners? If I were to say... Do you know somebody that's a good listener? My guess is that somebody comes to your mind because they're rare and they're precious. Somebody who can listen. Well, Bob Fine was a good listener. Number two, it helps to figure out the real problem. So it loves people to do what they most. Why questions work, right? People love to talk. It helps to figure out what the real problem is. When you ask questions, it helps clarify the issues. In sales, we call it overcoming the objection. You ask questions to figure out why this person isn't buying what you're selling, right? And all of a sudden, you may get an answer that you had no clue was the reason why, and you go take the whole thing in a different direction. Sometimes I've seen that a question I ask produces an answer that surprises me so much that I have to take it in a different direction. Number three, most importantly, and this is what I was referring to when Todd was praying, I've seen where questions can allow this, the Holy Spirit to work in someone's heart. You don't know what the Spirit of God is doing. You ask a question and people are less defensive. They're less opposed to making uh, a statement when you ask a question. And it allows the Spirit of God to work in their hearts for you to see that working. Especially in tough times when you have to talk about a difficult issue or when you're confronting a sin problem, right? Right? especially in our own life. The honest questions we ask ourselves can be the most important questions we'll ever ask, but only if you're willing to answer them. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us that his heart's desire was that the faith of the people would not rest upon his persuasive words or statements of wisdom, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, he mentions that part of that working of the Spirit comes by means of the spiritual man judging or praising or examining himself so that others won't have such a great need to judge them. So ask yourself the questions. He asks himself the hard-probing question. He knows the answer to many of them is his own sin. He's familiar with the area around the cross because he goes there often. And that's why Paul is so adept at leading others to do it. Not long ago, I guess it's been a couple of years ago, I visited Steve Walker's church. And I remember I went to a meeting that he had with all the men. I don't know what it was called. Once a month, they'd gather. And I asked Steve, I said, how long was it? Oh, it's about an hour. I said, and how do you prepare for it? Um, he said, you know, I, I, I create three questions and I walk in the meeting. That's all. I just have three questions. And he said, sometimes I get to the first question. Sometimes I get to all three. Sometimes I don't even get to a question because I have to figure out what the men want to talk about. And I thought, wow, that takes a lot of faith <laughs> to walk into a meeting uh, like that. But he told, I said, well, well why, why do you do that? He said, well, I want to know what the Spirit of God's doing. And the way I find out is by asking questions. And those of you who know Steve, that doesn't surprise you. Let me give you four ideas that may help you question, uh, to ask others. Don't ask yes or no questions. Questions with would, should, is, are, and do you think all lead to yes or no. Questions with who, what, where, when, how, or why lead to people giving some thoughts to their answers and provide you with much more information. Number two, dig deeper. Always consider using follow-up questions. Unless you are looking strictly for facts, there's some sort of assumption in the answer the person gives you that you need to ask something else, a follow-up question. What makes you say that? Why do you think that? Get deeper, dig deeper. Number three, use the power of silence. Oh, this makes me cringe, makes me uncomfortable. Start getting comfortable with asking a question and waiting for a response. Listen to the response, then wait some more. Many times the person you are asking a question has more information and will bring it out if you wait for it. Some people just process slower. I found that out the other day. The, The roach dynamic is not always slow processing and so you're around other people they just they don't jump in i'm like why are you so quiet well you guys just talking so fast and jumping in and you know it th- it throws throw things off sometimes you just have to wait for people uh, they're processing it and i say slower it's not because they're stupid or dumb they're just they're more thoughtful than we are sometimes lastly most importantly partly for me i say most importantly don't interrupt people don't interrupt people Proverbs 18.13, he who answers a matter before he hears it, i.e. interrupts somebody else, it is what? Folly and shame. That's right. Folly and shame. You're an interrupter, you're, you're a fool and shameful. Stop. I'm an interrupter. Interruptions tell a person you don't value what they're saying. Interrupting stops their train of thought. I do this to my wife too often. I interrupt and she forgets which, which way it was going. directs the conversation the way you want it to go, not necessarily the way it should go. Just ask your question and then let the person answer it in full, even when you think you're not getting the answer you want. So in conclusion, I think it's fitting that I end with a question, right? Since we know love is the greatest goal and at the top of the sanctification list, I will end with a question about love. There's so many important questions that Jesus asked while he was here on earth, but I don't know of one that he asked not once, but he asked three times in a row. Of course, it was the question, Peter, do you love me? For some reason, it appears that Peter didn't get it or that Christ wanted to make a very important point. You know from the Greek, we understand he wanted to take it deeper into Peter's heart. One word means friend. One mean, word means agape. Three times he asked him, About agape love, three times Peter responds in the affirmative. What is the intent of the question? What is Christ driving home here? Well, if you love me, you will give. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, you will obey and serve me even to the death, especially to those who tend the flock of God. This was a big question for Peter. You will be tested over and over again. Will you place their needs above your own? So people of God, I ask you, do you love Christ? The same way that Christ was asking Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the questions that Jesus asked. They're just mind-blowing, Father, the, his wisdom to take a whole room and just make them all be quiet. Yeah, Father, we see when hearts are dark and we cannot even hear the questions you ask. I pray that you would open our hearts. Give us the ability to be good listeners. Give us the ability to ask good questions that people would know that we do care, we do love them. And Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. Number 181 now thank we all our God. Would you please stand.
1: Now thank we all our God with heart and
0: us, make us different tomorrow because of what we heard today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you all.